2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The word of the Lord. All right, so finishing up today our sermon series, In Money We Trust, Putting Our Hope Where It Belongs. And we've been focusing on this issue, particularly as it relates to money, this issue of dependence. What are we really depending on? We know the right answer, of course, is God. We should be trusting in God more than we trust in our money. But it's difficult to navigate some of these things because we, we find ourselves so often drawn to money because we need it. I mean, all of us need money to pay our bills and all the things that really matter. And so how do we navigate our cultural dependence upon money, but we need to have a dependence upon God? So that's what we've been exploring the last number of weeks. Uh, week number one, we answered this question. Each week we've been trying to answer a different question. So week number one, what shouldn't I depend on? And of course the answer there was money. Week number two, what should I depend upon? And looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, week three, how much should I give? I'm prone to give. I, the Lord wants me to give. How much should I give? And we answered that by saying there is no one right answer to that question. God wants us to surrender, as it were, the whole pie, and then he will let us know what to do uh, with the pie from there. Uh, week four, where should I give? And uh, what's the hierarchy of giving priorities that would guide our giving? And we can see, looking through the New Testament, as we did last week, that we give first to our uh, biological family, our relatives meet the needs there. Then we give to our spiritual family, we meet the needs there. And then we give to the human family more broadly and meet the needs there. So finally, here we are in week five, closing out our sermon series. And we have this question that will guide our time this morning, is why should I give? In the Christian faith, actions are important. What we do is important. But even more important than what we do is the motivations that drive our actions. So what motivates us to give? What encourages us to give? How would you answer the question, why should I give? Last week, we gestured at this a bit with respect to church giving. If you were here last week, we looked at what the Apostle Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 9, where he tells us that it's appropriate that we give financially to our church if we are receiving a spiritual benefit from our church. So where we derive a spiritual benefit, we should give. If we have some benefit from our congregation, we should give to our congregation. It's kind of like taking your car to the mechanic, right? You get a benefit from the mechanic, you pay the mechanic. Now, that's a legit reason to give to one's church, 
Assuming, of course, you're deriving a spiritual blessing from your church. If you're not deriving a spiritual blessing from your church, you probably should just find another church. But that's a good reason for giving to a church. But that's not the only reason to give. And that reason actually doesn't extend beyond to more general acts of charity, particularly when we're giving to someone or something from which we cannot and do not derive a benefit. So for instance, we uh, give to a charity to help homeless people or hurricane victims or to the homeless uh, uh, person on 290. Or we give money charitably to organizations or people from whom we derive no benefit. Right? So what motivates us to give in those contexts? And what I think we're going to see is that when we get to the answer of what should motivate us to give charitably to organizations or people for whom we get no benefit, that's going to give us insight about how and why we should give just across the board in general. So that's the question today. What should motivate us to give, especially to people and causes that can't pay us back? We're going to look in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, which has already been read for us, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to walk us through the text as best as I'm able to to explain it, and then I'm going to turn and I'm going to apply it to our lives uh, as best as I can. So uh, hopefully you are still there in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. If not, find your way uh, back there. And um, let me just give you a brief word of context as we jump into this passage to make sure we understand the, the logic flow of what the Apostle Paul is saying. So the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, and he wrote it to the church of, in Corinth. And back in Acts chapter 11, there was a prophet who had prophesied that a famine would come upon the Roman world and that the famine would impact, in particular, Jerusalem and it would especially be difficult for the poor in Jerusalem. So the churches scattered throughout the Roman world decided that they would take up a collection to send to the church in Jerusalem so that the poor in Jerusalem would be taken care of. And so the Apostle Paul was involved in this collection, and you can see it a bunch throughout uh, his letters, but he was involved in, in this collection, and he had talked with the church in Corinth about participating, and uh, he had done that in 1 Corinthians. And so now he's writing again in 2 Corinthians, and he's saying, I'm coming to visit you. And when I come, I'm going to take the collection that you all are preparing, and I'm just giving you a heads up. And Paul must have had just like the kind of the little tremors of doubt that they would actually be ready for him. And so he wants to make sure that they're ready for him when he comes with the collection. And he's giving them some last-minute pep talk, as it were, about their participation in this collection that's going to go to the Christians in Jerusalem, and particularly the poor in Jerusalem. So chapters 8 and chapters 9 are dedicated primarily, exclusively, really, to this collection that Paul uh, is helping them take back to Jerusalem. All right, so we pick up Paul's argument or his logic uh, in verse 6 of chapter 9. And here, if you look at verse 6, Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul offers an analogy from agriculture. Namely, you reap in proportion to what you sow. If you sow a lot, you get a lot. If you sow a little, you get a little. 
just the way that agriculture works. And it's true, of course, in agriculture, but it's also just a truism for how life more generally works. The harder you work at something, the more diligent you are, the more you put into an endeavor or a cause, the more you tend to get back from that endeavor or cause. Life tends to give you what you put into it. Paul wants the Corinthians to think the same way in their gift to the poor in Jerusalem. He wants them to think the same way about money and giving. He wants them to think of it as a cycle of sowing and reaping. Now, this may have led the Corinthians, perhaps you as well, to a natural question. You might say to yourself, or perhaps the Corinthians said to themselves, I get that giving is in some way like sowing. I'm casting something out. But what are we going to reap? What does one reap from the poor that would not have been obvious to the Corinthians? And part of the reason it would not have been obvious to the Corinthians is because in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world that they live, the notion of gift-giving operated almost entirely, one might even say exclusively, but probably there were some exceptions, but almost entirely and explicitly on the idea of reciprocity. So in the Greek and Roman worlds, the Greek and Roman philosophers, the Greco-Roman statesmen, the social pundits, it was just the current there. It was believed that um, a gift was literally a form of investment of sorts. So you don't give out gifts indiscriminately. That would be considered foolish. And you don't give out gifts to just anyone. And you don't give out gifts based on needs. So it's not like, well, there's a need, I should give a gift to it. That was not the logic of the Greco-Roman world in the first century. You gave gifts because you thought that you could gain an advantage in some way over or through the person that you were giving the gift to. So whether it was social standing, whether it was a political favor, whether it was help with the business, business venture, or beyond, you gave to someone, whether it was money or whether it was some other form of favor, you would give to someone because you anticipated that in some way, down the road, they would come back around and give you something. So in that logic or that mindset of gift giving, it was considered foolish to give a gift to an unworthy person who couldn't pay you back in some way. So because of this, you typically didn't give gifts of any substance to the poor since the poor were not in a position to do anything for you. There could be no reciprocity between you and the poor. Thus, the poor were considered unworthy of a gift. Now, in our day, it's not unusual. Perhaps you've had this. You're at home, and someone knocks on the door, and it's someone taking up a collection or a charity for some cause or for some needy folks. That's not unusual in our day. That would have been very unusual in Paul's day. That just simply didn't happen. There was no collective sense of burden or need to care for the poor. You didn't do that because the poor couldn't, they could not, there could be no reciprocity or could not come back to you. The fact that it's, this is a little, this is free of charge that I'm about to give you right here, but the fact that is so common in our day shows the degree to which Christianity has permeated and so changed our cultural mindset about the poor and about gift giving.
So if you're one of those folks like, what has Christianity ever really done for the world? Has it ever done anything good for the world? Well, it's helped us to care about the poor and to give gifts to the poor. So we've got that, so we can say that much at least. Paul is here going against the current of his culture when he's suggesting to the Corinthians that they should consider their gift to the poor in Jerusalem as an investment. That's a little unusual, like sowing seed that will grow and expand. But if the poor in Jerusalem are not able to make good on the money that is sent to them, there really is, can be no reciprocity between the, between the poor in Jerusalem and the, the people in Corinth, then in what way is the gift that the Corinthians are going to send to Jerusalem an investment? So now I think we come to the unique Christian insight, or we could maybe expand that and say the unique biblical insight, because it extends back into the Old Testament and the Jewish tradition as well. The unique biblical Christian insight regarding gift giving. Here's what Paul is saying. God, not the poor in Jerusalem, will make a good return on the gift that is given. That's Paul's point. So look at verse 8. He's just said in verses 6 and 7 that they should give and to consider it an investment, sowing and reaping, and they're going to reap bountifully. And then he says in verse 8, not because the Jerusalem church will be able to such and such and such and such for you down the road. He says, verse 8, because God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what Paul is saying here is that there is indeed a reciprocity still in play. Right? There's still a reciprocity here, but you're not getting it back from the church in Jerusalem, from the poor in Jerusalem. You're getting it back from their God. You're getting it back from the one who watches over them. Look what he says here then in verse 9. He kind of carries on. He quotes from Psalm 111. Now, Psalm 111, if you want to go look this up, you're going to find that Psalm 111 has a Hebrew translation and a Greek translation. And this is the Greek translation, so you may not find it in your Bible. So don't send me any emails wondering you know, what's going on with this. But uh, he, this is the Greek translation. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So you might remember in our second sermon series, we, in second sermon in the series, we talked about uh, God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is not God's moral rectitude, necessarily. God's righteousness is his covenant commitments. It is his willingness to keep his covenant commitments. And so when God moves towards his people with mercy, when he moves towards his people with charity, when he moves towards his people to deliver them, he's being righteous. He is the sovereign king taking care of his own. And so here we have this example. Paul's using the same mindset here that God distributing freely to the poor is an expression of God's righteousness enduring forever. But then Paul, in verse 10, folds the Corinthians into this display of God's righteousness. And he says, the one that supplies seed to the sower and uh, bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So you're going to be, in a sense, being righteous as well as you extend uh, your help, which is ultimately God's help, down uh, to the church uh, and to the poor in Jerusalem. Paul is concerned that their 
sowing of seed, as it were, their giving of money, not just be seen as just kind of a random act of goodness or goodwill, but that it is seen as an investment, not because the poor in Jerusalem are going to give back, but because God is going to give back on their behalf. So again, Paul isn't rejecting this idea of reciprocity. He's insisting that the dividend is going to come from some other source than the poor in Jerusalem, namely God. All right, so now let me pause a moment here and say a word about the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard of the term prosperity gospel. Maybe you're new to Christianity. You've never heard of the prosperity gospel. I would say count yourself lucky and don't try to find out about it. <laughs> but since uh, probably most of us have heard or will hear about it, let me just say a word about it, because this would be a text that would be used in some ways uh, towards the prosperity gospel. The idea, idea behind the prosperity gospel is that if you sow some seed money, kind of following Paul's logic here, if you sow some seed money towards, say, the poor, maybe your church, perhaps the prosperity preacher uh, himself, whatever the case might be, that when you sow some seed money, God will reward you in return with 30, 60, or 100-fold of your original investment. So the key here in prosperity uh, preaching is that you have to give your gift in faith. And if you give your gift in faith, God will reward you because God wants every Christian to be rich. God wants every Christian to be financially prosperous. And in fact, the richer you are, the more you're blessed by God and show that you really have faith. And so you give your gift in faith. God rewards you because he wants you to be rich. And then having been rewarded, you can go out and buy your bass boat or your luxury jet or whatever it might be. Now, I can hardly think of anything that is more objectionable or antithetical to the idea of the gospel than the prosperity gospel. I mean, just look at the life of Jesus. And look at his apostles. See how they ended up. All of them either martyred or exiled. No riches among them, I assure you. And they had plenty of faith. The problem was that they didn't have faith. More faith than you and I, no doubt. And then, I mean, you just read through the New Testament, but I'll point you to James chapter 5 if you really want to get a good dose of it. But in James chapter 5, I mean, James has some things to say about the rich. Now, the New Testament doesn't say that being rich is inherently wrong, but there's some significant warnings that, and dangers that come with being rich. And in James chapter 5, James is detailing these warnings. And he, he says to the rich, weep and howl. And he warns them that they're in danger of decaying along with all that they possess. So there are real dangers uh, that come with wealth. The prosperity gospel just completely ignores. And God's intent, as we read through the New Testament, is clearly not that everyone and all of his children would be wealthy. All right, so giving as a way to become rich is not what Paul is talking about in this passage. But he is talking about getting money from God. He is saying that if you give, it might very well be the case that God will give back to you. Not only will he give you what you gave, but he might give you back more than you gave. But the point of getting back more than you gave is so that God can increase your capacity to be more generous, not so you can be self 
indulge in. All right. So Paul isn't talking about God paying us back with money so we can become rich. He's talking about paying us back with money so we can become more generous. That's Paul's point here. And of course, that makes, I think, a lot of sense. If you live a life where your finances are surrendered to God and you uh, are prone to giving generously as God directs you, you're, you're pliable uh, in terms of God's direction in your life, then you're a likely candidate for God to send resources your way as a distributor of what he wants to do in the world, right? So God wants to distribute his gifts freely to the poor. You are willing to be a distributor of the God's gifts to the poor, and so God just sends the money to you so you can distribute. All right, so it makes sense, this logic does. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life, that as you've moved towards generosity, it hasn't impoverished you. It's actually... Strange though it seems, you find yourself with more capacity to be generous than you were when you started. And so you just keep being more generous. Now, I should say a word here that sometimes God's reciprocity doesn't result in financial remuneration, as it were. Right? Then when we're generous, whether we're generous with our time or we're generous with our finance, it doesn't always mean that God's going to just flood us with more money. While money does seem to be the focus of Paul's thoughts here, Right in this passage, he chooses his words, I believe, carefully in order to broaden out the meaning. Look what he says in verse 11 here. He says, you will be enriched. If you give generously, God's going to see that. He's going to take care of that. He's going to give back to you. He's going to reward that. But he, look what he says. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul doesn't just limit it down to finances. He says, God's remuneration, as it were, that comes back to you, the reciprocity that God brings in on behalf of the poor in Jerusalem, it may not be finances. It's going to be God rewarding you so that in every way you'll be rich, in every way you can be generous, so that in every circumstance you'll have an opportunity to be a blessing. Sometimes when we give to those who can't pay us back, God returns or resupplies us with money. But sometimes God pays us back with an increased capacity to abound in works of generosity beyond financial generosity. Sometimes he rewards our generosity with an increased capacity to be hospitable, right? And so you extend hospitality, and God increases your capacity to be hospitable. Maybe you've got, you come upon a, uh, a home situation where you've got an, an unused room or an extra room or a finished basement, and you love being hospitable, and God has given you now space to be more hospitable than you were before, because you're using your hospitable hospitality wisely. Or perhaps God frees you up. As you volunteer your time, God frees you up so that you have more time, so you can extend uh, expand your volunteerism and can be more generous so that what you're giving is not necessarily finances in all the time, because not all of us have lots of money to give, but we're giving of our time, we're giving of our talent, and of course we also are giving of our treasure. And God is able in all of these things then to give back to us so that we can extend our generosity. All right, so here's the punchline in all of this. When we give generously especially when we give to those who can't pay us back in any way. Right, so when we give generously to those who can't pay us back, God sees, he knows, 
And he rewards the gift that we give with an increased capacity to give. Giving with confidence in God's reciprocity frees us up to give more generously. Giving in confidence of God's reciprocity frees us up to live more generously. Now, let me see if I can apply this here to our lives. And this is something that I have been prayerfully thinking about how it applies to my life as well. Here's a question for all of us to consider. How prone are you to view your philanthropy as an investment? How prone are you to view your philanthropy as an investment? As I wrote that question out, I had to really like assess that myself. And I think I'm probably more prone to view my philanthropy and my charitable giving, giving as a good deed. I give it. I expect nothing in return from the people that I give it to. But I don't know that I really expect anything in return from God when I give it. And now you might say, well, that's good, right? I mean, like, to give without expecting anything in return. That, you know, that's, that's you know, selfless. But here's, I think, the problem with that mindset. When we just consider giving a good deed, but not an investment, it actually truncates our capacity to give. See if you can follow me on this. So often, we are inclined in our giving, even as Christians, to think of our giving solely as a, a good deed. So when, from this mindset, we assess what our resources are. We kind of take stock of our portfolio. And then we know what the need is. We hear the need. And then we give gifts out of the excess of our resources. We give the gift expecting nothing in return because we need nothing in return from the gift. We give the gift expecting nothing in return because we don't really need anything in return for the gift. We've given out of our excess. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving out of our excess or our abundance. I mean, that's fantastic, and I wish that more of us were prone to do that. But giving out of our abundance doesn't require us to think of our giving as an investment. Only when we think of giving as an investment are we freed up. Now, here's the punchline on this, I think, the heavy thing for us to consider. Only when we think of our giving as an investment are we freed up to give beyond our means. To give beyond our means. Give beyond our means, you would say. God certainly wouldn't expect us to give beyond our means. I mean, we actually looked at that in week two, where God says, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, give everything you have. Well, that was beyond his means. We've kind of got our things that we need money for, and then we've got our excess, right? And, and to give beyond our excess and to cut down into our needs, 
Does God expect that? God would never expect that. Turn back in 2 Corinthians, the beginning of chapter 8, where Paul starts his whole discussion with the church in Corinth. There was a churches in Macedonia were also part of the collection, and Paul says to the church in Corinth, hey, listen, the churches in Macedonia are also taking up collections, and I want to point you to their example as a way of kind of inspiring you to participate and fulfill your obligation to the church, uh, to the poor in Jerusalem. But look what he says here about the churches in Macedonia and their participation in this collection. He says, I want you to know, brothers, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And then he says, and beyond their means. The Macedonians were not in a great spot themselves financially. They themselves gave out of their extreme poverty. What would inspire someone to give above and beyond their means out of their extreme poverty except a view that Paul is talking about here in chapter 9, that if I give this to God, God is going to take care of me. God is asking me, in this case he was asking the Macedonians, to give, and they, in their obedience to that request, gave out of their poverty beyond their means, confident that their gift was an investment, not just simply a good deed, it wasn't just a good deed. It was an investment. How much expectation do you have that God knows and cares about your needs, sees your philanthropy, and is committed to resupplying the seed that you sow? Resupplying, and maybe even then some, so that you aren't left destitute and can continue on being generous. This is why Christian philanthropy in its purest form is an act of faith. Not merely because giving is good to do and consistent with our faith, but because it's an expression of our confidence and our dependence upon God that God will take care of us and pay us back. So you remember from our Hebrews sermon series, we worked through Hebrews, and one of the things that I pointed out in one of the sermons there is that much of the way that faith is understood in the series in Hebrews is it's not necessarily just backward-looking to God's faithfulness in the past, but it's forward-looking to God's faithfulness in the future, and that our obedience in the present is based upon our confidence that God's going to be there to catch us in the future, just as he promised. So if we have faith, doesn't mean, do I believe that Jesus died on the cross? But if we have faith in Hebrews, meant, do I believe that God is going to take care of me as I persevere in obedience? Similar logic here that Paul is using with faith and charitable giving. That as we give charitably, do we give in a way that we have confidence that God is going to be there to take care of us? That God's going to make good on it? Christian faith looks forward to the reward that God will give when we give to the poor. So let me challenge all of us to reconsider a bit, to prayerfully think about what it means to be generous. And I've been challenging myself with this. It's admirable 
to give consistently. It's admirable to even give sacrificially. But as I was thinking about this and examining my own life, I think when I think about giving sacrificially, so many of us are so prone to give sacrificially when we are sacrificing our preferences. That's when we're willing to give sacrificially. So I you know, was going to go on vacation with my family. Uh, it's going to cost X amount of dollars. But then my brother, his kid you know, has cancer, some medical issues. So we cancel the family vacation. We take the money we had saved up for the family vacation, and we send it off to my brother to care for his family or, or to some poor or some other worthy cause. Right? That's tremendous. And uh, God be praised if someone would choose to do that. Right? But that's giving out of our, out of our preference. It's sacrificing our preference. It's sacrificing a want. But what would it mean for us to consider a generosity that runs so deep that if God asked of us, we would be willing to sacrifice our needs in order to give? To get to that place, we have to think of giving as an investment that God, in his reciprocity on our behalf, is going to send back to us what we just gave away however that works out, or whatever that means. Generosity involves at least three people, three parties, as it were. There's the giver. So let's say that's me. I'm the giver. Then there's the receiver. That's the person in need. And then there's the gift supplier, as Paul speaks of God here in chapter 9. The giver, the receiver, and the gift supplier. When we neglect to think of God as the gift supplier, we have to be our own gift supplier. And our generosity is thus limited according to how much we think we can supply or resupply based on what we're giving away. And that's why our giving never moves beyond our means. Why, we, why we're hesitant to give or don't even maybe even consider giving more or beyond our means. From the faith perspective, though, our generosity should be determined in relation to God's promise to us as our gift supplier. If God calls you to give over and above your means, and I'm not here saying that he is calling you to give over and above your means, certainly not in every situation is that always the case, Right? But if God does call you or he calls me to give over and above our means, to not only sacrifice our wants, but even to begin to sacrifice some of our needs, that's not an act of foolishness because God is the resupplier of the seed that we are sowing. He's the one that is taking care of us. It's a step of faith, to be sure, but it's not a step of foolishness, which brings us full circle to where this series began. Ultimately, the point of the series has been to help us shift our dependency from God, or from money, rather, over to God. Sometimes, there is no better way of actually doing that than to give above and beyond our means to give the gifts that aren't just coming from the fat of the land, but are coming from 
the last bit we have or what we're depending upon to get us through into the future or whatever it might be. To give in such a way that we put ourselves in a position where we are depending upon God to step in and catch us. That's the scary place of faith to give when God calls us to that place. Maybe God is calling you to that kind of giving, to give sacrificially not just of your wants, but to give even sacrificially of your needs, promising you that he'll take care of you. Maybe God is calling you to that. Maybe God's calling me to that. It's not for me to say what God is calling you to. It's not for you to say what God is calling me to say. But I will say that we all of us need to be open to what God's call on our life is, to give fully of what he asks of us, asks of us confident that he is the one who supplies our needs. So you pray about that. I'm praying about that. I can't say how much or how often you should give. That's for you and the Lord to decide. But here's what I can say, that we need to think of our generosity in relation to God's promise to supply our needs. That we need to not just give as a good deed, but we need to give as an investment because we're expecting and dependent and confident that God is going to give back to us. We need to give charitably with confidence in God's reciprocity. All right. I'm going to let you sit on that one for a little bit. I got to sit with that one for a little bit, too. I hope this sermon series has been helpful for you. The fundamental aim of the series has been to help shift our sense of dependence away from the world, from money, which is probably one of the uh, primary places we would go for dependence, right? And shift that over to God. And money can do so many things for us, but it can't meet all of our most basic needs. It can't address every need of the human condition. The reason that God calls us to put our entire dependence upon him, to find our life in him, is because God knows that, because God loves us and he knows that there can really be no life apart from him. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not just some pie in the sky, by and by life, right? But that human life lived in this world is at its fullest when we are living it in accordance and in relationship with God and in dependence upon God. And God calls us to himself to lay aside our, our dependence upon money and to find our dependence in him because he wants us to thrive he wants us to be alive. He wants us to know the joy and the fullness of life. And so though it's counterintuitive of Jesus, as Jesus taught, that the, the way to that life is through the path of death. The way to prosperity is through giving. The way to blessing is through taking upon ourselves the curses of this world. Yet the way that God will bestow himself upon us is when we are willing to let go of our, our innate natural human tendency to try to find our meaning in this life and instead find our meaning in God. So my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is not that we would just give more money. That's not the prayer. 
The prayer is that we would come to recognize our innate dependence upon God. How much we give in the end is regardless. That's between God and us and whatever he calls us to in our circumstances. But the real issue is who are we depending upon? Who are we trusting in? Are we finding our life in God and what he has provided for us through his son? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had today. Thank you for the time that we've had through this uh, series. I pray, Lord, that you would inspire each of us here to reflect in uh, fresh ways, in conversation with your spirit, to think about what we depend upon, what it is that we are really looking to, to provide for our needs. Are we looking to you? Or are we looking to our own resources, our own finances? Help us, Lord, to, to look to you and help us to have hearts that are generous and are willing to go wherever you guide us and lead us, are willing to do whatever you ask of us, trusting that you are the supplier, the resupplier of all of our needs. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.